Welcome to the Invictus Church Podcast. We're grateful that you've chosen to listen, and we want to invite you to join us each week as we upload new content. Our prayer each week is that those who listen in would not just be stirred or inspired, but also changed. Now, get ready for life change with this week's message from Invictus Church. Well, everybody, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 13 and also to John chapter 14. We're going to be looking at a couple of passages uh, today, and as we are uh, getting ready to to look at those passages, I just want to talk about my childhood for a second. Uh, I was raised in the 70s and the 80s, and uh, what did that time bring to us? It brought us things like the Walkman. Who, who remembers what a Walkman was? You know, a few of you kids are like, what's that? Uh, some of our kids here today don't even know what an iPod is because that's old. Um, <clears throat> but uh, wow, the Walkman, Dungeons and Dragons came out in the 70s. Anybody remember the satanic panic? Everybody was freaking out about people playing D&D. And if you played D&D, you're a devil worshiper. And um, yeah, all that crazy stuff. Arena rock. You know what I'm talking about. Hairspray rock. Wear hair this big, lots of makeup, look like women, and uh, wearing spandex and, yeah, all kinds of strange stuff. Uh, uh, or the mixtape, the art of the mixtape. That is a lost art in today's world. How many of you were given a mixtape by somebody, and you were like, oh, they love me? <laughs> right? That was like the ultimate sign of teenage love, uh, was getting a mixtape. And uh, Cool Ranch Doritos came out in the 80s. That's like one of the best things the 80s ever gave us. The 80s gave us horrible fashion, but good Doritos. So uh, we're grateful for that. And of course, Star Wars came out in the 70s and the 80s, and that's the most important thing on my list uh, from the 70s and 80s. But, but there were some, although there were some good things that came out of the 80s and the 70s, there were some things that were uh, a little bit uh, questionable and, and kind of scary. Um, this one may be up for grabs. If you have any memory of this at all, you might have thought it was awesome. I thought it looked like a demon-possessed toy, and I'm talking about Teddy Ruxpin. Anybody have a Teddy Ruxpin growing up? Uh, If you don't know what that is, you need to Google it, go on YouTube, and uh, you'll either think it was really clever and cute, or you'll have nightmares. Um, So uh, anyway, I used to think that thing was uh, horrific and scary. Uh, Then, of course, bad fashion uh, during that era, and uh, uh, one of the freakiest things was, you know, you'd go to school, and you'd sit down at lunch, and they try to make you feel safe at school and secure at school. And here you get your lunch, and you pick up the milk carton to take a drink of milk. And what's on the side of the milk carton? A picture of an abducted child. <clears throat> that does not make you feel safe. Uh, that, that's one of the crazy things. that they, And then in AIDS... Uh, really became well-known in the 80s, and people were freaking out about it and scared of it. And uh, I had a little cousin who stepped on a nail, and uh, she was terrified that she was going to get AIDS from the nail. Uh, she was, like, crying, I might get the AIDS, you know. And uh, uh, thankfully, we, we know a little bit more about it. Of course, the, the Cold War was at its height uh, in the 70s and the 80s, and uh, uh, schools would teach you how to dive under a desk. Like, that is going to save you from nuclear fallout. Um <clears throat> But uh, anyway, then, then one of the crazy things from the 70s and the 80s that I really remember was in church, and it was Sunday nights. Sunday nights seemed to be reserved for uh, playing movies that were 
horribly made. Uh, the actors were terrible. They were worse than B-movies for sure. And they were always about the second coming of Christ and the rapture and the tribulation. And uh, there was all of these terrifying things. In these, and I, I would watch them at, at church as a little kid. And I would go home like really scared. Like, is somebody going to use a guillotine to cut my head off? You know, I mean, it was, it was terrifying. I'm like, what are we doing to our children in church playing these crazy videos? Um, and uh, so today we're talking about that particular subject, the second coming of Jesus, uh, when he comes back. And um, it's uh, uh, one of those things that is in the New Testament frequently uh, through this series, Breaking News. We've been looking at the headlines that Jesus made during his ministry. But today, we're talking about one of his coming headlines. Uh, one day, he is going to be coming back. He's going to make news again. And the New Testament talks about that day over and over and over again when Jesus is going to return in power. He's going to return with final authority. And some people don't like talking about that uh, because there's this sense in today's American culture where we should only focus on God's love and his grace and his gentleness. And that's the God we like to talk about, the Teddy Ruxpin God, right? The one that's like, hi, everything's happy and I love you and it doesn't matter what you do, I think you're great. Um, but there's only one problem with that view of God. If your view of God is so myopic that you choose to ignore the wrathful side of God, the powerful side of God, the side of God that should make us fear. Well, let me tell you why your view of God is really not very good. And here's, here it is. You may call him a God of love, but if a God allows all the bad things that have happened through history to happen, and at the end of time does nothing about it, that is not a loving God. That's a jerk. If your view of God is that he's not going to do anything about the Holocaust, I weep for your view of God. If you think God only approves of what you do, that's not a loving God. What loving parent only approves of everything their child does? Oh, you're playing with matches and gasoline. Good boy. That's asinine. I'm just going to call it what it is. A loving God not only extends to you a tremendous amount of mercy and grace, but will also discipline those that he loves. One day, Jesus is going to come back. And when he does, all the wrong things in the world will finally be made right. You see, there are a lot of atheists and people who object to God who will say, well, if God's real, why has he let all this bad stuff happen? Well, here's the reality. He's not just letting it happen. You see, we know the end of the story. He's going to come back and he's going to make it right. He's going to fix what is broken in this world. You say, well, that doesn't help me today. That's because your view of God is so broken. When we look at this scripture that we're going to look at today, I believe that when you have a proper view of the love and the justice of God, 
the mercy and the power of God. It will help you with today. Um, we're going to be looking at uh, John chapter 14 in just a minute, but I, I want to talk about a, a $4 seminary word real quick before we jump in there, and it's eschatology. Uh, eschatology. Anybody ever heard that word? It's, it's kind of a big word, and uh, what does it mean? Well, it comes from two Latin words. Eschaton uh, is uh, where the, the word that, that literally means last things, um, the stuff that comes last. Not complicated, eschaton. And then ology is where we get uh, study of. So biology is the study of life. Theology, the study of God. Eschatology is the study of last things. And uh, so that's what we're going to be talking about today. If you've ever been listening to a preacher and you've heard that word eschatology, uh, then now you know what it means. Eschatology means what? The study of last things. And so uh, we're going to be talking about some of these last things. What are going, what's going to happen at the end, all right? Now, maybe you're already feeling a little overwhelmed because some people, when you start talking about this, they, they lean forward in their seats and they're like, ooh, goody, give me more. And they're like super curious about the end times and the rapture. And they'll talk about things like tribulation and uh, the millennial reign of Christ and the rapture and uh, all of these kinds of things. And they get really into it. And others of you, you hear those words and you kind of go, I'm panicked. I don't know what they mean. It's a little overwhelming. It's kind of freaky. I don't like thinking about scary stuff. I don't even like watching horror movies, and I, I certainly don't want to talk about the horror movie in the end of the Bible. Um, so, you know, it, it may, might make you a little bit nervous. Some of you, maybe it makes you nervous because you're like, you know, that's really heady, intellectual kind of stuff, and I don't want to go there. Uh, but I, I just want to encourage everybody relax today. Uh, this is going to be fairly easy for us, I think. So let's jump in real quick to John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Jesus starts out with, don't let your hearts be troubled. And that's a message for you today. When you start thinking about the end times, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There are, there's more than enough room in my father's house. If this were not so, I would have told you, or would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Somebody sent me a YouTube link this week to a uh, guy who was preaching and had questions about this person's theology. And, and um, one of the first things that this guy started talking about in his uh, message was that uh, he says, nowhere in the Bible does Jesus talk about bringing believers with him to heaven. And I was like, have you read that Bible that you're talking about there, buddy? Um, he just said it here. When did Jesus said he was going to come and take us back? What does it say? In verse 3. What does he say? When everything is ready. When's that going to be? When everything's ready. You've all been there before, right? You, you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm thinking about. If you've been married, you're like ready to go, and your, your kids aren't, or your wife isn't, and when are you going to come? 
when I'm ready. When's that going to be? When it happens. This is not mysterious. Now, there are people who spend oodles and oodles of time, just ridiculous amounts of effort trying to figure out the day and the moment that Jesus is going to come back. If you can't figure out when your kids are going to be ready to leave, you aren't going to be able to figure this out. All right? Trust in God, Jesus says. Trust also in me. The first and most primary lesson that we've got to learn about the end times, eschatology, the second coming of Christ, is this. He's got it under control. Just chill out. It'll happen when it happens. He's going to come and get us so that we will always be where he is. And scripture tells us that he will be reigning at the right hand of the Father in power and in glory. And in that day, there will be no more pain There will be no more suffering. There will be no more rape. There will be no more holocausts. There will be no more genocide. There will be no more murder. In that day, all things will be made right, and we will be with him where it is right if we are followers of Jesus. This is good news. This is not terrifying. This is exciting. Now, in this passage, Jesus says he's coming back to get us. Now, maybe you've heard that referred to as the rapture. Now, that is a word that does not appear in the Bible, by the way. If you look at the Bible cover to cover, you're never going to find the word rapture. The word rapture is a term that we have given to this event that is coming that Scripture does talk about. And what's the event? Jesus is coming back to get his followers. He is coming again. And uh, when that happens, he will take us up in the clouds, the Bible says. And that is what we refer to as the rapture. So uh, maybe I'd like to hope that this guy that I was seeing on the Internet was uh, meaning that Jesus never says the word rapture. The Bible never says the word rapture. If he had uttered those words, I would have agreed. Yeah, that's definitely not in there. But the concept is there. And uh, so uh, anyway, before we jump into our next text today, I want to share a few principles for interpreting eschatological or apocalyptic passages. Don't you like those big words? Makes me sound like I'm smart, even though I'm probably not. But uh, anyway, um, uh, uh, eschatological simply is the the kind of verse that we're talking about here, a a verse about eschatology or a passage about eschatology, the study of last things. Apocalyptic simply means, you know, we've seen movies where apocalypses happen and uh, the aliens come and they destroy everything or it's the zombies zombie apocalypse or whatever. So we kind of get that image, all right? When we look at passages in the Bible that are about these things, they can be a little bit overwhelming. And so I want to give you a few tools. When you are reading these passages, uh, take these tools. If you've got your Bible today, I encourage you to write these down, uh, maybe inside the front cover or the back cover of your Bible, so you've always got them handy. And uh, uh, write them down, maybe email them to yourself, something. Uh, keep these things, because I think they will be valuable for you in your own personal study uh, of the Scripture, especially when it comes to the hard stuff, like uh, the book of Revelation or the second half of the book of Daniel. If you read the first half of the book of Daniel, it's awesome. It's like really 
really cool and these great stories about God coming and rescuing them. You know, you, you see Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, jumping into a fire and not burning up and all this cool stat- stuff happens. And then you read the second half of the book of Daniel and you feel like you're having an acid trip. Um, I mean, it's just like, whoa, what is this about? Uh, you've got to, you, you're going to need some of these tools uh, to read those parts of the Bible and to not be like totally stumped or freaked out by them. So here are those tools. Number one, write this one down. Apocalyptic texts are always part symbolic and part literal. They're always part symbolic and part literal. This does not mean that the text is not literal at all. There are literal components, but it means that there are things that are symbolic that represent something that will happen, uh, not something that's, you know, like literally saying this is going to happen in exactly this kind of order. Uh, The second tool that you need is to this, or is this, to, to realize that everyone superimposes their own filter on apocalyptic texts. Now, what do I mean by that? You impose things like your culture, your time, technology, your own experiences. Uh, You kind of read the Bible through that filter. And so I remember a a pastor talking once about a passage in the book of uh, Revelation where it talks about this creature that has like a scorpion's tail. And uh, it's, it's like a lion, but with the face of a man. And um uh, and it flies in the sky. And what could this possibly be? And he puts up a picture of a uh, military helicopter with the, the big monster face kind of drawn on the side, you know, so it's got big teeth kind of like a lion, but it's got a pilot in it, face of a man. And the tail kind of curves up there like a scorpion, and it's flying. And so this must be what the Bible's talking about. Look, it's a helicopter in the Bible. And as much as those things might fit, I've got news for that guy. That is him superimposing his filter, his culture on the Bible. That's him saying, this is what the Bible says. That's not the Bible saying, that's what the Bible says. All right? If God wanted us to know it was a helicopter, God has enough power to have revealed to John when he was writing the book of Revelation, write this word, helicopter. I know you don't know what that means, John, but write it down. God could have done that. You know how I know he did that? Could could have done that? Because in the book of Isaiah, when Isaiah the prophet is writing about the the Persians who are going to come and conquer the Babylonians and that these Persians will come and deliver the Israelites, he names a guy by name hundreds of years before the guy was even born. And he says, this will be the guy that will deliver you, Israel. And the name was Cyrus the Persian, a real historical figure, an actual guy. If you've ever seen the movie 300, any guys here seen the movie 300? Come on. It's one of the best guy movies of all time. It just kind of makes you want to go, yeah, I'm going to die today. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those really exciting movies. You want to go get a sword and chop something in half, and it's really good. The bad guy in that movie is a historical figure named Cyrus, the emperor of Persia, and God named him hundreds of years before he was even a thought. He was prophesied about in the book of Isaiah. Explain that to me, Lucy. God has power. 
and can say exactly what he wants to say in exactly the way he wants to say it. Don't make the mistake of reading something in the Bible and going, oh, you must be talking about an iPad. We, we just don't know that kind of stuff. We can't know that kind of stuff. What is being talked about in apocalyptic literature might be something so far in our future that we can't even imagine. And so we need to make uh, sure that we're not trying to superimpose our own stuff. A lot of times people get really caught up in things like, well, look, Barack Obama did this and this and this and this. He must be the Antichrist. Or so-and-so did this and this and this and this, and he must be the Antichrist. I, I remember countless times when people were telling me growing up, I think this guy's the Antichrist. I'm like, every one of you have been wrong. God knows who the Antichrist is. That's enough. I don't have to know all these details. Here's the principle I want you to not miss, okay? The point of apocalyptic literature is not for us to figure it all out. The point of it is for us to be ready. So here's the next principle right here when you're interpreting eschatological and apocalyptic packages or passages. Uh, don't get so bogged down in the confusing parts that you miss the clear parts of Scripture. There are lots of people that get so tied up in the stuff that's confusing that they neglect the stuff that's obvious, like love your wife. And they may spend so much time studying the Bible and studying this apocalyptic literature that they neglect their wife. Can anybody say, duh? Let's not miss the plain stuff because we get so caught up in the confusing stuff. Next one is this. Look for principles that apply more than complete understanding of the entire text. There are principles that apply to our lives. What is a principle? Well, there's a precept, and that would be something like a command. Uh, do not commit murder. Do not murder. That's a command. That's not a principle. There is always a principle behind the precept. Uh, why is it wrong to murder? Because God created man in his image, and man has intrinsic value because we have the image of God. This is why we are against abortion. Because that baby has intrinsic value. No matter what world that baby's going to grow up in, God gave that person value. And therefore, we should protect it and value it. If God values that life, who are we to not value that life? People have intrinsic value because they are created in the image of God. That's the principle behind do not murder. So in the passages that we're going to be talking about and looking at this passage today, there are principles that we need to apply, and those are far more important than the little details and nuances of understanding everything that's written here. So does that make you feel a little bit better, a little bit more equipped as we jump in here and read this passage? All right, this is a long one. The following text is Jesus speaking directly to his disciples, and therefore it's a message that is primarily for them, 
But that doesn't mean that we can't learn from it. So let's look at it. Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 1. And we're going to read a lot of verses, and I'm going to pause in between as we go through all of these things. As Jesus was leaving the temple that day, he was in Jerusalem. One of the disciples said, teacher, look at these magnificent buildings. Look at the impressive stones in the walls. And Jesus replied, yes, look at these great buildings, but they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of the other. Now, why were the 12 disciples so amazed at this temple? They'd been to Jerusalem before. They had seen it before. Uh, why were they sitting there going, wow, look at this, Jesus. This is cool. It's because uh, over the previous decades, there had been lots of additions and remodeling in the temple, if you will, and upgrades. And it was huge and imposing and fantastic. And if you've ever walked by a massive skyscraper, no matter how many times you've seen it, there's always that moment that just comes occasionally when you go, wow, this is a lot cooler and bigger than I thought. And it just kind of dawns on you, holy smokes, this is insane. And um, so that's kind of what the disciples were, were thinking as they're, they're looking around here. And, and uh, just give, to give you that context, they're like, isn't this cool, Jesus? And Jesus' response is kind of weird. He starts with, yeah, it's cool, but it's going to wind up in the trash pile. Well, that's weird, Jesus. Did Captain Random strike again or what? I mean, what are you talking about? We're just talking about cool architecture. And you're like, and it's all going to burn, right? I mean, that's not very, Jesus, are you okay? I mean, this is weird, all right? Um, verse 3, later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives across the valley from the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew came to him privately and asked him, tell us, when will this happen? When is the temple going to be all destroyed? What sign will show us that these things are about to be fulfilled? Jesus replied, Don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't Panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in many parts of the world as well as famines, but this is not, or, but this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. When these things begin to happen, watch out. You will be handed over to local councils and beaten in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me for the good news must first be preached to all nations. Now let's pause right there for just a second. He says in this passage, watch out. And the Greek words that we translate watch out are blepo humes blepo. Uh, he kind of repeats this word, and it literally means, look, you look, if we were to translate it absolutely literally. Now, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> look, you look. What does that even mean? Um, it, it simply means really, really, really pay attention, guys. Don't miss this. This is going to go viral on YouTube, yo. He knows that what he's about to say is hugely important. Don't miss it. 
And then he talks about in that, that last verse that we read, the end will not follow immediately. First, the good news must be preached to all nations. There are um, a couple of, well, there are multiple interpretations of this uh, particular sentence. I just want to um, uh, share a couple with you. Uh, one is uh, people will, will take that and, and say, Jesus is not going to return until... Every nation on earth has been preached to and has heard the gospel. Have you ever heard that particular take on this passage, anybody? Uh, that's a, a very common one. And uh, it could be right. I don't know. I'm not going to stand up here and disagree with it and tell you that uh, I think they're dead wrong because a lot smarter people than I am uh, hold that position. I personally don't hold that position because Jesus is talking to the disciples here very specifically. And um, uh, what he talks about in this particular passage is that uh, or what he's been talking about when we look at the context of the passage, he is saying, you're going to get arrested, but don't think of it as a problem. Think of it as an opportunity. Because when you get arrested, you're going to have this opportunity to share the gospel with kings and with leaders and important people in the community because they're going to have you on trial. And that becomes your platform. And that's when he says that sentence, all nations are going to hear this before the end. I personally think Jesus was telling the disciples something figurative here, not literal, that he was saying figuratively, don't freak out about getting arrested because this is your platform to begin spreading the gospel to all nations. The Apostle Paul, I think, is a classic example of this. When we look at the life of the Apostle Paul, who came uh, after this time, uh, he uh, was arrested and he was a citizen of Rome. He was an unusual Jew in that he was a Roman citizen. So he had certain rights that typical Jews didn't have. And the Apostle Paul would say uh, when he would get arrested, yo, I'm a citizen. And they'd be like, oh, well, we got to treat this guy a little bit better than we treat other people. And so uh, eventually he, he appealed his way all the way to the Caesar of Rome. The Apostle Paul was taking this idea quite literally that, you know what? This is a great chance. I got arrested, and I'm going to get to preach to the emperor. Woohoo! I mean, how many of us get arrested and go, woo? <laughs> not, not normally, right? But it, Jesus is, is giving a principle here that persecution is okay because it actually gives us an opportunity. And I, I think that's what he's talking about there. Now, again... I'm not the world's greatest expert. There are a lot of brilliant theological minds that disagree with me that would take the, the first interpretation that I talked about and say, Jesus is saying here that as soon as every nation in the world literally hears the gospel, then I'll be coming back. Man, that's great. If that's literally what he means, then man, we need to get out there and share the gospel with everybody because I want Jesus to come back sooner than later, don't you? This world is a mess, right? Or can we agree with that? The place is pretty jacked up. And uh, we, we could stand to have some house cleaning in this world. And, and I would rather see it sooner than later when I, I look at some of the, the signs and the, the direction that our culture is going. I'm like, man, I'm, part of me is a little grieved that my kids are going to have to be adults in that culture. And... Uh, Part of me kind of wishes they wouldn't have to go through that. Um, but God's in control. 
And if they have to go through it, he has a plan for it. And there will be opportunities for them to share the gospel in ways that I was never able to share the gospel. And God is big and he's going to use it. Now, like I said, there are different interpretations here. And if anybody ever puts a nail and hammers it down and says, this is the only right interpretation of apocalyptic literature, my suggestion to you is run. Because this is weird stuff that even the disciples who heard it face-to-face, they didn't understand it all. You know what they thought? They were convinced that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. That was 2,000 years ago, and he still hadn't come back. So God has a bigger perspective than ours, and we've got to be open to the principles as opposed to any one specific interpretation of these challenging passages. All right, so anyway, let's jump back in here. Mark 13, 11 through 12. But when you are arrested and stand trial, don't worry in advance about what to say. Just say what God tells you at the time. For it's not you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit. A brother will betray his brother to death. A father will betray his own child. And children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. And everyone will hate you because you are my followers. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, this is another one of those sentences that can get a little bit confusing for people. Um, uh, Some people interpret that to mean that only the people who remain good and holy uh, will actually be saved. And um, so they use this as a, uh, a, uh, a verse, a proof text, the position that a Christian might be able to lose their salvation. And there are lots and lots of Christians who believe that, lots of brilliant theologians that believe that. I don't agree with that position, but if that's your position, I love you. And um, we are allowed to disagree on that. It's one of those less important points of theology. Uh, I believe that Scripture is abundantly clear throughout that once God saves somebody, no matter what they do, He has saved them. And I base that on this one simple principle, God doesn't lie. When he makes a deal with somebody and he says, you're saved, he's not saying you're saved as long as you can hang on to it. Scripture never gives that premise, never. It's always you're saved, period, end of story. So if that's the case, if I'm right, then what does this mean? But the one who endures to the end will be saved. I believe here's what it means, that the characteristic of a true disciple is that he will endure whatever persecution or she will endure whatever persecution comes and not abandon Christ. That if somebody does abandon Christ, they probably weren't saved to begin with. That's what I believe Jesus means here. Verse 14, the day is coming when you see the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing where he should not be. Reader, pay attention. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. Now let's just pause right there. This verse is tremendously confusing, and all kinds of people have ideas about this. Um, And and, um, uh, I'm just going to tell you straight up, I have no idea what Jesus is talking about here. There is nothing in my experience, nothing in my personal context that would give me 
anything, a filter through which to read this and go, oh, that's what he means. Because for whatever reason, I believe we're not quite ready to understand this yet. One day, we're going to look back with 2020 hindsight, and we're going to be able to see everything in this passage and go, I could have had a V8. Right? Now I get it. Oh my gosh, it makes sense now. Today, we don't really understand what that means. The day is coming when you will see the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing where he should not be. What's Jesus talking about? I don't know. And at the end of the day, I'm okay with not knowing. You know why? Because I know the one who does know. And he's enough. He's smarter than me, stronger than me, wiser than me. He's got it so I can rest. Have you ever had one of those questions when you were a little kid for your mom or dad? And they started to give you an answer, you know, some big, profound, deep question like, Daddy, where do babies come from? And Daddy gets that big-eyed, terrified look in his face and then starts giving you an answer that makes no sense whatsoever. Well, you see, when a man and woman love one another, they come together and um, the Lord blesses them with a child. And you're like, so it just kind of happens. Okay. And as a kid, I remember my dad saying something like that because he didn't want to have the talk. And um, I was like, okay. Why was I good with that? Because even though I didn't understand it, even though it didn't make much sense to me, and I was like, that's just kind of weird. Even though I didn't get it, I knew the one who did get it. And I trusted my dad. And that was good enough for me. And the Bible says multiple times, Jesus himself says, you have to have faith like a little child. Doesn't mean that you're stupid and gullible. It means that you trust the one you love. And you say, he knows enough. He's strong enough. He's powerful enough. And that's good enough for me. All right, let's jump in here again. Uh, Verse 15. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter. For there will be a greater anguish in those days than at any time since God created the world, and it will never be so great again. In fact, unless the Lord shortens that time of calamity, not a single person will survive. But for the sake of his chosen ones, he has shortened those days. Then if anyone tells you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. Watch out. Bleppo humes bleppo, he says again. Look, you look. This is going viral on YouTube. I have warned you about this ahead of time. Verse 24. At that time, after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers and heavens will be shaken. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send out his angels to gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. Now learn a lesson 
from the fig tree. When its branches buds or bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things taking place, you can know that his return is very near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene before all these things take place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. What does Jesus mean when he's saying, this generation will not pass from the scene before all these things take place? Was Jesus wrong? Because the disciples passed before everything that he said there takes place. There's a couple of different takes on this that I think are important for us to look at. One is that people say uh, in this, this verse, Jesus is likely referring to verses 5 through 23, where he's talking specifically what's going to happen to the disciples. And then he's speaking figuratively about verses 24 through 27. And then in verse 30, he says, this generation will not pass from the scene before all things take place. If you have that particular uh, bent theologically to say that's the interpretation, he's only talking about the former part of the text and not the latter part of the text, then it helps it make some sense. My problem with that is if Jesus wanted them to think that only the former was going to happen, he would have tied verse 30 in with the former part and not the latter part. But he says all of it, and then he says the latter part. So what did Jesus mean? The other theological position, and I think that we've got to consider here, and that we've got to look at, is the less comfortable one. And it is, I don't know. Was Jesus maybe speaking figuratively about maybe using the word generation to refer to all people? I don't know. But... He meant something that I, I don't grasp here. And so I have to go back to that principle about I can't get so hung up on the stuff I don't understand that I neglect the things that I do understand. What do I understand from this passage? Well, let's look. We're going to get some real clarity here in the next verse, 32. However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Not even the heaven and angel, or it, angels in heaven or the Son himself. Jesus is saying, even I don't know. Only the Father knows. And since you don't know what, when that time will come, be on guard. Stay alert. The coming of the Son of Man can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. When he left home, he gave each of his slaves instruction about the work that they were to do, and he told the gatekeeper to watch for his return. You too must keep watch, for you don't know when the master of the household will return. In the evening, at midnight, before day dawn, or at daybreak, don't let him find you sleeping when he arrives without warning. I say to you what I say to everyone. Watch out for him. Whew. Anybody else hot after reading that marathon passage? A lot of confusing stuff. What do we do with it? Well, let's look at the principles that we can know. What do we know from this passage? Number one, write this down. Jesus is coming back. We know that. We don't know when. It's, it's, it's not a maybe scenario, though. We know he is coming back. What's the next thing that we know? Stuff is going to get worse before his return. As bad as it is today, before Jesus comes back, it's going to get uglier. Okay. That's pretty horrifying when you start to think about it, but 
There it is. But Jesus, what does he say to us in this passage? What's the principle that we get from Jesus in his own words? This is an opportunity, not a problem. Don't freak out about the fact that it's going to get worse. Just realize that I'm going to use this worse to create for you more opportunities to share the gospel with other people. So this worse, because God's in control, is actually better. That's pretty comforting, isn't it? That God has a plan through all the upcoming awfulness and strife. He has the final trump card, the final say. He is in control. The next principle that we know from this passage is this one. Only God knows when Christ is going to return. We can't figure it out. If anybody tells you, I've figured out when Jesus is coming back, they are a false prophet. Don't believe them. I'll never forget, in 1988, it's actually the year before, 1987, a guy came out with a book called 88 Reasons Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. But in 1989, he did not write 89 Reasons I Was Wrong. People think they've got this figured out all the time. We don't know when it's going to happen. The the most important principle in the entire passage is this one. Don't miss this. Write it down. Remember this. The most important principle is we should always be ready. That is abundantly clear. Don't miss the clear part of the passage because of the confusing parts of the passage. So what does this have to do with us today? How can we apply this? Ask yourself the question, am I ready? If Jesus comes back today, am I doing what I ought to be doing? Am I bringing honor and glory to him? Am I doing everything in my power to use the opportunities that I have to reach other people for Jesus? Or am I sitting on my hands? Another question you need to ask yourself is, am I ready? Have I accepted Christ as my Lord and my Savior? Am I a Christian? Because if I am not, on that day and he comes and he takes Christians back, I will be left behind. Here's a sobering thing I don't want you to miss. You don't want to be left behind. Are you ready? The next question to ask yourself is, who do I know who is not ready? And immediately when I say that sentence, there are names that begin to pop up into your head. What are you waiting for? Tell them. Bleppo, who makes bleppo? Look, you look. Get ready. Pay attention. Watch out. The end is coming, and we don't know when, but we know we need to be ready. Can you imagine the feeling in your heart when you're being taken up in the sky and you look back And you think to yourself, I didn't tell that one. 
I didn't tell that one. She's being left behind because I didn't open my mouth. He's being left behind because I was too afraid to share the truth. Be ready. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening to the Invictus Church podcast. Be sure to tune in every week for more new content. We'd like to invite you to join us in person for our weekend worship services. To get more information about our meeting times and location, please visit us online at www.invictus.church. If this or any of our episodes have inspired you to take steps in your relationship with Jesus, please let us know by sending us a note at info at invictus.church. We would love to hear how our message has helped change your life. Also, if our podcast has been meaningful for you and you'd like to give financially to our ministry, you can easily make your contribution online at www.invictus.church. Thanks one more time for listening. We hope you'll join us again next week.